3: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxai. and this is Best of the Best, the 2015 Third Coast Festival broadcast.
4: That's radio for you, close to every member of the family. I know because radio has been my life.
3: Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year. Winners of our Richard H. Griehaus Foundation competition. But before we share these unforgettable stories, just a little bit about who we are and what we do. The Third Coast Festival is an independent organization in Chicago dedicated to great radio. Heart, soul, and ears. We gather the best stories from around the world all year long and share them in a variety of ways, on the radio, via podcast, at live listening events, and honestly, every other way we can think of. We also host a worldwide competition to honor the very best audio documentaries of the year. This year, we received 352 entries from all over the world, including Italy, Bangladesh, and the UK. Then we asked the field's top producers and editors to gather for the impossible job of judging this work nine one-top honors. On this special broadcast, we bring you the winning stories and behind-the-scene tales from their creators. So stay with us for this hour of Best of the Best. In the world of news production, it's all about speed and accuracy. There isn't often time for setting the scene and illustrating it with sound. But it doesn't have to be that way. The Third Coast Best News Feature Award was created to honor the news stories that go beyond the who, what, where, when, and how, and create strong connections between subject and listener. Our next story does just that. It takes us into the dark, hidden world of human trafficking in Myanmar. Myanmar's Rohingya Muslim population is among the most oppressed in the world and their desperation to leave has attracted the attention of human traffickers. America Abroad reporter Axel Cronholm traveled to Myanmar and brings us a story of one family caught between the traffickers and their unpayable fees.
5: Abdul, a scrawny Rohingya male in his 40s, leans forward, gazing into the screen of a dusty laptop where a Skype call is connecting. It's been 47 days since his 14 year old daughter Dildar left the IDP camp on board a fishing boat crammed with other Rohingya Muslims escaping the oppression in Myanmar. But until her traffickers are paid off, she's held captive in a secret location somewhere on the border between Thailand and Malaysia.
6: Hello. Hello. Hello.
5: One of the traffickers picks up the phone, but the signal is bad. Hello? The call is cut off, and Abdul will have to try again in a few minutes. The Rohingya in Myanmar are stateless, refuse the rights and protection of normal citizens. In the eyes of the government and of many Burmese, they are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. Simply referring to them as Rohingya can be controversial. Most people call them Bengali. The desperate conditions in the refugee camps in Myanmar push many Rohingya into the hands of human traffickers who promise them a shot at a better life in countries like Malaysia. But these traffickers are criminals out to make a profit and use lies to lure people onto their boats. Abdul's daughter Dildar was told that her trip would only be a couple hundred dollars US. Now, the traffickers are demanding $1,500 for her freedom.
7: Most of the cases hinge on deception that takes place on shore.
5: This is Matthew Smith, executive director at Fortify Rights, an organization that has documented the persecution of Rohingya for many years.
7: So, Rohingya are told, in many cases, that they'll pay a certain fee, typically $200 US, uh, to get on a boat uh, to take them to Thailand or to Malaysia. When they get on that boat, they find that the conditions are not what they expected. People are crammed into relatively small fishing boats, so they're deprived of adequate space, they're deprived of food, they're deprived of water. And on top of that, the gangs that are operating these boats are highly abusive. So we've documented killings at sea, um, rape and sexual violence. In some cases Rohingya have committed suicide at sea.
5: But the hardships do not end there. The Rohingya who survived the trip over the Andaman Sea will face further abuses once they get to shore.
7: Most people get on the boats thinking that they're going directly to Malaysia. What they find is that they're taken on shore in Thailand and clandestinely transported to what we refer to as torture camps. And these are camps, there are a number of them still today, With thousands of Rohingya being held captive by these transnational criminal syndicates, they are beaten, in some cases beaten, mercilessly tortured. They're handed cell phones, and they're told to call anybody that can raise money that would, in effect, ensure their freedom.
5: And at that point, the fee is no longer a few hundred dollars, but up to as much as $2,000 U.S. And even if the families cannot pay the traffickers can still make money off the refugees.
7: If after several months their families are not able to raise the money to free them, they can be sold to fishing boats, they can be sold to other sectors in Thailand or in Malaysia. Young girls or women are often sold into forced marriages, so it's a very large, serious regional problem.
5: Back in the refugee camp outside of Sitwey, The 3G connection is more stable now, and Abdul makes another attempt to call the traffickers who are holding his daughter captive. For each dial tone, his breathing gets heavier. Abdul finally gets through to the trafficker, who repeats his demand. $1,500 and Dildar will be set free. Abdul works as a trishaw driver and on a good day he can earn up to one dollar and fifty cents US. He explains that he will never be able to earn enough money to raise one thousand five hundred dollars. So he asks the trafficker at the other end of the line if there is any chance that they could marry off his daughter to a man. Thereby getting her out of the jungle camp. All the other girls here are leaving because their parents are paying, the trafficker says. It's only dildar that nobody wants to pay for. And then it happens.
8: Hello. (laughs)
5: The trafficker hands over the phone to Dildar who at this point hasn't had any contact with her parents since she left 47 days ago. Can't you borrow money from someone? Asks Dildar. From who? I have no relatives that can lend me that kind of money. We are broke, Abdul answers.
6: Daddy,
5: all the other girls are leaving from here, Dildar says. I know, I know, says her father. And before Dildar gets a chance to say goodbye, the trafficker takes back the phone. If you manage to raise the money, call me again, says the trafficker. I will try, God willing, says Abdul, and again begs the trafficker to try to come up with some kind of solution. (laughs) This trade in people has become a very lucrative business, as the number of Rohingya refugees from Myanmar has reached record highs over the last few years. Matthew Smith's organization estimates that around 250,000 Rohingya have left Myanmar on boats since 2012. In June, the U.S. government will present its annual Trafficking in Persons report a worldwide ranking of countries' efforts to combat human trafficking. And Matthew Smith expects that this year's report will downgrade Myanmar to the lowest possible ranking.
3: Human traffickers find easy prey among Burma's Rohingya, won the 2015 Third Coast Best News Feature Award. The story was reported by Axel Kronholm with editor Mia Lobel and producer Rob Sachs for America Abroad. Now yeah, we
2: didn't have uh, much time, Houston, to uh, talk to you about our views out the window. I didn't know what I was looking at, but I sure did like
3: it. This year, the 2015 Third Coast Silver Award went to a story about the sounds of walking in space, which, as our judges pointed out, would not be first on a list of stories to tell in sound, since space has no sound. But, the judges added... Colin McNulty's gorgeous documentary shows the power of the medium using the ear to unlock the full impact of the visual imagination and taking listeners to a place very few people will ever go.
2: When Ed White did the first American spacewalk, it was recorded live. And if you listen to the audio of this spacewalk, he is very emotional, very happy.
9: Okay, I'm out.
6: Okay, he's out. I feel like a million dollars. This is the greatest experience I ever remember. Feel very thankful for the hard experience. me doing this.
2: And then it's clear that it's time for him to come back in, but he really didn't want to, and so it was really interesting to hear him kind of drag his feet a little bit, so to speak. Uh, got any for us? The
6: flight director says, "Get back in." Uh-huh. Okay. They want you to come back in
10: now. Back in.
2: Houston Mission Control, which was speaking to him, basically had to be kind of like a parent and said, You know, Edward, it's, it's time to come back inside from your, your experience.
6: Yeah.
2: And I, I believe he even said it was one of the saddest points of his life to actually have to go back inside. While I was on board the spaceship, I thought it's such an unusual and rare place for people to be. Maybe I should just try and do some ambient sound recordings. Of, of what you hear. for an astronaut, there they are the sounds of the forest. you're You're used to those. I was doing a checkout on the spacesuit. and during the checkout, we pressurize it, we depressurize it, we run it for a while, we we you know activate the bleed valve and various things. All of those have kind of a distinctive sound. I recorded um, the ambient noise of what when the when the fans and the pumps are running at steady state that so, sort of a cross between a, a vacuum cleaner and a, and a microwave maybe that sort of steady whining hum i recorded that you float head first into the airlock your a crewmate floats feet first into the airlock because there's just room in there for two people head to toe uh, the people of the space station close the hatch behind you, and then very gently and slowly you uh, pump all the air out of the airlock. You're floating weightless in there, and it gets quieter and quieter. At first it's noisy because there's lots of air around you to conduct sound, but as the pressure drops, uh, the air gets thinner and thinner until there's no air at all, and it's dead silent, except for really um, the what you hear on the radio, the uh, the fans inside your suit, and and the company of your own breathing <laughs> and it's kind of a reassuring sound to have I reached down and turned what looks sort of like like you see on a ship where someone turns this big heavy metal wheel and it and it spins something that looks like a big manhole hatch to open that's what we go through to go outside a big circular hatch and then you reach through that huge hole you've created in the side of your spaceship and there's just some fabric on the outside to so like a like a sun shield you push that fabric panel out of the way and then instantaneously you're at the doorstep of the universe and finally you are outside Uh, do a sort of a delicate little flip around to get pointed the right way and somewhere along the way you catch a full-face view of the earth. Whatever you thought the world looked like, it is more magnificent than that. And it's textured and nuanced. It looks nothing like a shiny smooth globe or or a map where all the countries are different colors, and north is always up. It is this great, living, um, miraculous thing. And it stops your thought.
3: That was an excerpt from the 2015 Third Coast Silver Award winner Sounds Up There, produced by Colin McNulty for Whistledown Productions and BBC Radio 4. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2015 Third Coast Festival Broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxei. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition, But you can also hear fabulous work from around the world. Over 1,500 curated documentaries in our growing audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up, a young African-American man is shot by a white police officer and lives to tell his side of the story. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxei. Violence against unarmed African Americans by police is one of the most urgent civil rights issues of our day. In 2008, police officers were patrolling a quiet neighborhood in Bel Air, Texas, when they saw an SUV go by driven by a young African American man, Robbie Tolan. What happened next changed the lives of the Tolan family forever. The 2015 Third Coast Honorable Mention Award went to 695-BGK from the podcast Criminal, hosted by Phoebe Judge. And just a note, this story might not be suitable for all listeners.
6: It began tonight, I was patrolling the area around the supermarket, riding around my windows down, and I saw a black SUV driving a little erratically.
10: This is police officer John Edwards, speaking with investigators in the early morning hours of December 31st, 2008. Edwards was a police officer in Bel Air, Texas, right outside of Houston. And
6: I stopped at the end of the street and watched the vehicle for a minute as it parked in front of a residence. Two males got out and they observed me looking at them, looking back at my vehicle. As I passed the vehicle, I ran the plate and it returned as a stolen vehicle. Stolen vehicle? Stolen vehicle?
10: Firm tag.
3: Six,
10: nine. We're listening to what Officer Edwards heard, indicating that the SUV was stolen.
1: Warning, potential hit.
10: The two young men, both African-American, were now out of the car and walking up the driveway towards the house. Edwards called for backup and got out of his car. As, as soon
6: as I exited the vehicle, that that said, "Stop, police! Let me see your hands." And both of them begin saying, "It's the police! What? Why are you f- with us? Why are you messing with us?" And it's just a lot of profanities. A lot of basically, they they didn't think I should be here in the first place. And I, I told them I got a stolen hit. I said that the vehicle turns to be stolen. They're driving the stolen vehicle. Did you have your gun out at this point? Yes, sir. The, as soon as I exited the vehicle, I had my gun out.
10: Officer Edwards ordered both men to get down on the ground. That's when the front door opened, and Marion and Bobby Tolan saw their son face down on the front porch. A second officer arrived on the scene, Sergeant Jeffrey Cotton, and he tried to move Marion Tolan towards the garage. Here's Sergeant Cotton speaking to investigators. As I'm trying
6: to move her. She's resisting. She's not really cooperating. I take both hands and start to move her toward the garage she turns around says something to the effect and i don't remember exactly what a word but something to the effect of get your hands off me it may have been some profanity as well i look back to her to keep moving her forward and i hear him start to yell i look he gets up and starts he may have taken a step toward me uh, and he's yelling get your hands off her he's got his hand like he's digging in his waistband. At this point I'm thinking, I can't believe this guy is really, you know, he's that he's really got a weapon. I can't. And I see that he's standing up. I start yelling, stop. At this point I pushed her, drew my weapon, and I'm backing up. You know, at this point he's facing and his arm's coming up. So I fired twice. The suspect fell backward and rolled back onto his stomach again. The female here was was screaming, I held for a minute until I felt like I could approach him. He was no longer acting threatening, now he's just kind of laying on the ground boning. moaning. When you did approach the suspect, after you had fired rounds, you did approach the suspect, um, did you check him for any weapons at that point? Yes, I did. I checked his waistband, his pockets underneath him uh, and I did not find a weapon.
10: Sergeant Cotton shot 23-year-old Robbie Tolan in the chest at close range. Cotton said that night, and repeatedly since, that he shot Robbie Tolan in self-defense.
6: When he came up, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I can't believe this guy's you know, pulling a weapon. I mean, he's coming up, and I'm thinking, don't do it, don't do it, and he's still coming, and he's reaching for his waistband, and, you know, I, I mean, I've got I mean, a wife and five kids, so...
10: That's hard to hear, but what he said is that he has a wife and five kids. Lately, we've been hearing a lot about police officers shooting unarmed black men, allegedly in self-defense. But one thing makes the Tolan story different from those we've seen in the news lately.
9: It felt like a sharp pain at first, and then it actually hit me. It literally feels like, you know, an elephant is standing on your chest. That's the only way I can really describe it.
10: Robbie Tolan is still alive. Not only did he survive the shooting, but he didn't even pass out. And when he tells the story, the shooting did not happen the way the officers say it did. The Tolans moved to Bel Air, Texas in the early 90s, after Bobby Tolan retired from playing Major League Baseball. He played for the San Diego Padres, Cincinnati Reds, St. Louis Cardinals, a bunch of teams. Robbie is the Tolan's only child, And back in 2008, he was following in his father's footsteps, playing for the Washington Nationals minor league team. He and his cousin Anthony had gone out to dinner and to play pool with friends. His parents were still awake when they heard him pull up just before 2 a.m. Bobby Tolan remembers that they heard his car, and then they heard yelling.
9: The noise got a little bit louder, so then my wife and I, we went outdoors. And that's when we found out all the commotion, what it was about. Um, I was standing in front of a person who had a weapon and a flashlight. And I told him that this was my son, uh, my house, I live here, and that was Robbie's car. Because Robbie said, when I walked outside, that Dad, they said, we stole a car. And I said, no, this is my son, my house, his car. And at that point, I was taken over to my Suburban that was in the driveway at gunpoint. The
10: Tolan's continued to try to explain to Officer Edwards that the car wasn't stolen, that there must be some misunderstanding. They were both in their pajamas. Here's Marion Tolan.
11: And I was saying, this is a big mistake. You guys are really, you've really done it now. This is a big mistake. So then I heard a voice behind me say, get against the garage. And I turned around and I saw there was another police officer behind me. And he said, I said, are you kidding me? He grabbed me by the arm and he threw me against the garage door. And he grabbed me so tightly I had bruises on my arm. And and it was a metal garage door, so it made a just horrific sound. And it really startled Robbie, I'm certain. And so Robbie, you know, pushed himself up on his knees to the right, because we were to Robbie's right. And he said, get your hands off my mom. He didn't say it that nicely.
9: I said, get your hands off my mom. And he didn't say a word. He, he, he just looked and pulled his gun and shot me.
10: Robbie Tolan and his mother both say he pushed himself onto his knees, but that he didn't make any movement towards Sergeant Cotton. They also say Sergeant Cotton gave no warning before firing his gun. This is not what Sergeant Cotton told investigators just four hours later.
6: He comes up this way, and as he turns and stands, he's probably standing, you know, right around here. He turns and starts. He may have taken a step toward me. I see that he's standing up. I start yelling, "Stop!" I don't remember what I know. I yelled, "Stop!" I don't know what else I yelled. It may have been, uh, "Get on the ground." That's something I would normally yell or get down, something like that.
11: Uh, I'll show you the baseball field. Bel Air baseball. We flew to Houston to meet with the Tolan
10: family, and Marion drove us around the Bel Air neighborhood where they used to live.
11: A lot of new development.
10: What was it that made you want
11: to move into this neighborhood in the first place? Because it was in the city, it was close to everything, and they had a very good baseball program, Little League, and the high school was right here. Bel Air High School has been the number one in the state many times, and... So it was, it was just a nice place to raise my son, I thought, you know?
10: Bel Air is an affluent community, mostly white. In 2010, African Americans made up 1.6% of the population. The Tolans had lived there for almost 16 years, just a mile down the road from the police station.
11: This is the house right here. Anthony was laying like this way in front of the door. Robbie was laying in front of that flower box. On the grass? On the ground. Uh-uh. In, on the concrete. At the door. Robbie was at the door. He was at the door. And he shot him from right there. Robbie so you, was right you there. Were,
10: you were three feet away from him being shot?
11: Yeah. Maybe five feet, but I wasn't... I mean, I was right there. I was right there. The gun was right in my face, and I saw the fire from the gun.
10: Marion says she heard Robbie say, Oh, God. And she knew he'd been hit.
11: And I started praying for him very loudly because I wanted to make sure that he heard me. I just thought if he can hear me praying, he'll hold on. He'll fight because I had no idea how bad. I mean, I had no
9: idea. I couldn't see anybody, but I heard my mom praying. And I, you know, put my hand up my shirt. And I Pulled out a handful of blood and I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe this happened." And I heard my mom say, "Um, I can see smoke coming from his chest."
10: Did did you think for a second, "Oh, I'm like I'm 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 dying. I'm going to die."
9: Oh yeah, I thought it was it. I thought it was I thought it was a rap. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
10: The Tolan's weren't allowed to go to Robbie. Bobby Tolan was put into the back of one police car. Marion Tolan was put into the back seat of another. They couldn't get out and they were screaming. Officer Edwards, the first officer on the scene, began to look into the matter of the stolen car. He typed Robbie's license plate number into his computer again. And this is when he realized he'd made a mistake. Robbie's plate was 695-BGK. Officer Edwards had typed in 696-BGK. He got it wrong by one digit.
3: That was an excerpt of 695BGK, this year's Third Coast Honorable Mention Award winner. Six years after the Tolan family filed a lawsuit against police officers Jeffrey Cotton, John Edwards, and the City of Bel Air Police Department, and just as jury selection was about to begin, the suit was settled. Tolan and his family were awarded $110,000. 695-BGK first aired on the podcast Criminal from Radiotopia. We recommend you listen to the story in its entirety on our website, org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2015 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Coming up after the break, the 2015 Third Coast Gold Award winner. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxey. And now we want to tell you about the winner of our top honor, the 2015 Third Coast Best Documentary Gold Award. Sight Unseen, our judges said, is a story about a life and some photographs. But in Radiolab's hands, it becomes much more. A story about seeing, how much we should see, and ultimately what we are allowed to see. It's an amazing story, perfectly told. And just a word of caution before we begin, the story does contain some graphic descriptions. Here's Jad Abumrad. But we'll start with the picture taker.
1: My name is Lindsay Adario and I'm a photojournalist.
0: She's been covering war for the last 15 years.
3: I've
1: done military embeds, infantry units, patrolling, going in house-to-house searches.
0: She's worked in... Well, everywhere. Sudan, Libya, Lebanon, Pakistan, a million places. She's been kidnapped twice. She's won a Pulitzer, a MacArthur, and she's been called one of the most influential photographers of the past 25 years. In any case, this particular story, can you set it up a little
1: bit? Sure. Uh, so, in December of 2009... She
0: was taking pictures for Time magazine. She was in Afghanistan, Ghazni district, Helmand province, stationed at a base in the middle of the desert.
1: I was embedded with the medevac team and their role is to go in and pick up injured troops out of uh, the theater of war
0: this is a small team of basically helicopter pilots medics doctors
1: basically whenever there's an injured soldier these teams are called whichever team is closest to the injured
0: we're talking like helicopter dropping into
1: oh yeah i mean this is fast
0: so lindsay had been embedded with this team for a couple of days and not much was happening.
1: So You're just sitting around, reading magazines, and then rereading the same magazines.
0: And one night, really late.
1: I think I was lying in bed, and I was totally like, if I wasn't asleep, I was on the verge of sleep. When they, someone ran was like, there was an alpha.
0: Alpha is like...
1: Alpha means the most gravely wounded. Like, you have seconds to get there. I mean, it's it's life or death.
0: So she grabs two cameras, her helmet, body armor, runs out to the Blackhawk.
1: I strap myself in, and we take off. And I think it was about a two-minute flight, which is so fast. And I remember I was shooting the fields as we flew in because I was trying to focus and see what I can see. Luckily, they had lent me a set of night vision goggles, which was really nice to the military because you can't see anything without them in the middle of the night because they are using night vision, so they don't ever turn on the light.
0: So if you were to look through the camera directly, you would see... Nothing. Just blackness.
1: Nothing. So what you do for a photographer is you put the night vision goggles in front of the camera lens so it looks green. It's fluorescent green.
0: Does that mean that the picture you get is green? Yes. Huh. So they fly for two minutes through the pitch black... Land the helicopter. She has no idea where.
1: And everything is happening extremely fast. I'm trying to focus as I'm looking out the helicopter door. And suddenly in my viewfinder, I see a man sort of wrapped, I think he was wrapped in a blanket. And he's uh, he gets put right in front of me on the floor of the, of the Black Hawk. The first thing I thought is, I think he's already dead. He seemed completely unresponsive, and he seemed so young. I just remember looking at his face and thinking, God, what are we doing here?
0: Within seconds, they're airborne again, flying back to the field hospital. Lindsay takes pictures on that brief flight back, grainy, fluorescent, green images of the medics tending to the soldier, checking his vitals.
1: We land at the field hospital.
0: They rushed him on a stretcher into the hospital tent.
1: And the whole team of medics, Navy nurses, the anesthesiologists, everyone is there. They carry him inside and put him immediately on the table, uh, cut his clothes off. They're cutting his pants off, um, open up his shirt. And the room starts filling up with everyone because everyone has heard that there's an alpha. And so troops come in from across the base, sort of in support.
0: She says within minutes, the room went from just a handful of people, five, six, to A dozen, 20?
1: And it's, you can hear a pin drop. I mean, the room is silent except for the doctors. You know, they're trying to resuscitate him. He had lost, I think, eight or nine pints of blood. They're bringing in blood. They're bringing in all sorts of things. And um, I...
0: Are you shooting this whole time?
1: Well, yeah, of course. You know, I'm basically trying to be invisible because it's so sensitive to be a photographer in that situation. What I do, I don't shoot like bang, 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 you know, I shoot one frame and then I put my camera down and I shoot another frame. Because you can hear the click of the shutter, and it is, like, exponentially louder than normal in a situation like that.
0: Well, did, you get, did anyone look, give you a look of, like, so, back off or well, anything like that? Well, at
1: one point, I was shooting for probably, I don't know, five or six minutes maybe, and an officer walked over to me, and he said, hey, stop photographing. And, really? Yeah. And I put the camera down, and I looked at him, and I said, I have permission.
0: She had worked all that out beforehand as part of the conditions of her embed.
1: We had had all these conversations, you know, what happens in the case of this? What is my access? What can I do?
0: But at this point, she says, uh, the room was full of people from across the base who didn't know any of that. Didn't know who she was, that she had permission. And so she was sort of at this fork in the road. There were those, like that officer, who clearly felt, put the
1: camera down, Stop. Obviously, this is not the time to argue or to be disrespectful. So I didn't say anything else. I put the camera down. But she says the moment she did that, several other troops said, no, let her shoot. This has to be documented.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So you have one guy who says, you can't take a picture of this. Right. Almost like anything but this. Right. And another guy is like, no, this especially.
1: Right. Right. First of all, the guy who said no was being productive. It made perfect sense for me but i think the guys who who stood up and said this has to be documented i think at some point everyone realized like look this war is not going away we are losing so many lives and limbs and and no one is seeing it
0: and keep in mind this is 2009 this is just the tail end of a 18-year ban where the news media couldn't even photograph military coffins In any case, the officer let it go. Lindsay continued to take pictures for about another 20 minutes. She took pictures of the doctors cutting open the boy's chest, massaging his heart.
1: At some point, I remember someone, one of the doctors looked up and said, does anyone else have any suggestions, basically, for how to save him? And everyone said no, and they sort of disconnected the, I mean, he died. People were looking down, and then they were looking at each other, and someone went to go get a flag, an American flag, to drape over his body. And I continued photographing, and there was a moment where uh, the whole room was silent, and people stood around his body, draped with a flag, uh, and said a prayer. That, to me, is one of the most powerful images that came out of this whole series.
0: There's this old idea in photography called the decisive moment that the world is filled with these far-off realities, but every so often a photograph can capture a moment that, boom, takes you there. This is one of those photos. In the picture, you see all these men and women standing in kind of a loose semicircle. Some of them still have their uh, blue surgical gloves on. They look totally spent. They're all looking in different directions, and they all look like they're not even there, like they're totally lost in their own thoughts. Their attention is clearly Inwards. Yeah.
1: I'm sure all those troops were like, God, it, that could have been me. Why couldn't we save him? What are we doing here in Afghanistan? Is this war worth it? And to read the expressions on their faces, like, it, it's even, you can be at war as a journalist, but never actually get to the heart of the war because we don't have access or people don't open up. And I felt like I really had reached, a, a, like, the crux of the war. Interesting. It was war.
0: You'd seen an essence of something. Yeah. But then came a problem. Any photos that she had taken that included that soldier's face or any other identifying marks like tattoos, and he did have tattoos, according to the rules of her embed, she couldn't use those photos without the soldier's permission. Right. And you never got to speak to him. No. So was it... Days later, weeks later, months later, where you began to ask yourself, can I no. – who do I talk to? it was minutes later. Minutes I mean later. it's,
1: it's – the military does not let a journalist cover something like this without coming directly to that person. And so literally like I – Followed uh, the young man's body out to the morgue and they had to walk him outside and I remember it was the moon was so bright that night and I was shooting with the moonlight as he was being carried outside and then uh, I went back to the tent where I was staying. And within minutes, uh, the military PAO, the Marines, uh, public affairs officers, came and said, uh, you know you can't send those images out without permission from the next of kin.
0: That's the rule. If a soldier is unconscious and then dies before giving permission?
1: I have to then go to the next of kin. And I said, of course, I understand. You know, I'm not doing anything with those photos in that right. moment. I sign this piece of paper. When I give my word, I keep that word, you know. Sure. But then the other side of me was like, Fuck, you know, in Vietnam, no one was signing pieces of paper and in Vietnam, no one had to, to, to go to the next akin before they published anything. And that's why the American public, I think, rose up against the war in Vietnam because they saw the most graphic devastating images that were uncensored.
0: So then what do you do in that situ- circumstance? I mean – I imagine you go to the next of kin, right?
1: Well, you're not allowed as a journalist to reach out to the next of kin. They asked me, are you interested in being contacted by the next of kin if they're willing to speak to you?
0: Oh, so you can't even actually call.
1: No, they will not give you the information. But I said, um, you know, of course I would like to be contacted by the next of kin and please pass my information on. And I was sort of just waiting.
0: I mean, at this point, were you thinking the pictures would ever see the light of day?
1: I had no idea. And, um...
0: A few days later...
1: Maybe less than a week.
0: Her embed was over. She was flying to JFK on her way to meet her family for Christmas.
1: And I had voicemails on my telephone. And I listened, and it was his father. And he left me a voicemail, and he said, I understand you were with my son when he died, and I would like to talk to you, and this is my phone number. I sort of choked up just listening to his voice, anticipating how difficult that phone call would be.
0: His father's name is Todd Taylor. Son's name was Jonathan Taylor. And just to jump ahead for a second, as we were talking about the phone call and the fallout from that phone call, I had all of these questions about what Todd Taylor was thinking, questions about his son, things that Lindsay couldn't possibly answer. So at a certain point in the interview, she just told me.
1: I don't know. I mean, you could maybe interview him.
0: Do you think he would, I mean, is is there any prohibition on me talking to him?
1: Well, I'd be happy to give you some information. Yeah, I'd I'd love to talk to him. Yeah, I mean, you can try.
0: Lindsay uh, put us in touch, and I'll just tell you about the visit for a second. Todd Taylor was willing to talk. He had two conditions. One was like, if I'm going to do a a story about these photos of his son, I should at least get to know his son a little bit. And the second was that I come down to Florida to meet him and his family personally.
3: The destination is on your left.
0: So I did. Hey. Good,
4: morning. Good morning. How you? The
0: Taylor family live in a section of Jacksonville that's near a naval base. So there are a lot of military families there.
4: You come
0: on in, meet all the you Todd is actually ex-Navy himself. Oh, no, 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 no. No he introduced me to his three giant no boxers. Jump, no jumping. Or they sort of introduced themselves. And then my daughter, my youngest. Nice yep, youngest. I met his daughters.
12: I am Lauren Taylor. I am 16, going on
7: 17. Oh, God. You had to add that in.
12: <laughs> My name's Mackenzie Taylor. I'm Jonathan's other sister, and I'm 20 years old.
0: That little voice you heard in the background is Easton. He's about two.
4: Hey. That's one of the babies she watches.
12: Hey, handsome.
0: Mackenzie works as a nanny. Hey.
12: My name's Paige Larson. I'm Jonathan's stepsister, and I'm 21. My name's Sue Taylor, and I'm um, Jonathan's stepmom.
0: And then,
4: of course. I'm Todd Taylor. I'm Jonathan's dad. Um, we're here in my house in Jacksonville, Florida And today is Jonathan's birthday It's April 8th
0: 2015 So he would have been how old today? 28 years old today 28 When I got there, they pulled out photo albums of Jonathan And we all sat at the kitchen table And looked at pictures right there. Uh, Pictures of him as a baby Of course that was very young Toddler. This was on the Disney cruise I took him on Adolescent, Kennedy Space Center. Mm -hmm. Teenager, you see him running track. He liked cross-country. Going to prom. That was Jonathan's girlfriend. The thing you notice immediately in all the pictures. Yeah, big blue eyes. Mm -hmm. He's got these eyes that are not just blue, they're really blue. Like if you boosted the brightness in Photoshop or something.
8: Yeah, I think we're on vacation here, but...
0: The other thing you notice. Mm -hmm. His
8: facial expressions are really funny in some (coughs) of these.
0: He was a big class clown lot of goofy faces.
12: Very goofy. Oh, big goofball. Yeah. Goofball, yeah. Definitely knew how to make anybody laugh.
4: Full of energy, always into stuff.
0: He kept the boys away, too. <laughs>
12: <laughs> definitely, most definitely. He made sure if I had boyfriends, he'd call them just to see what grades they had. Really? He would check on their grades? Yeah, kind of give him a little interview. I do remember he was very protective. If I had a crush, he'd be like, oh, no, you're not going to have a crush. No, no boys. There was one time before he left for Afghanistan, like, i got really sick with a fever. And I remember him holding my hand just so he can make sure that I was okay and, and took care of me.
0: They told me story after story about how he doted on his sisters, how he loved to read and wanted to become a history teacher after his four years in the Marines. And inevitably, the conversation turned to the day that they found out he died, December 1st, 2009. They get a call from Jonathan's mom um, saying, it's that classic scene, Oh my God, there are two Marines at the door.
12: And we just kind of, like, like Mm -hmm. left everything.
0: Sue, Todd, the girls jump in the car, race over.
12: They all wanted to get out. We're like, no, because we didn't really know what was going to happen. So we made all the girls stay Mm -hmm. in the car. And I remember walking in the door, and everyone just had this look on their face. Like, the world had just ended. And, um... I remember asking what had happened. And my mom had told me that he was gone. And the first thing I did was run to his room because everything was the same before he had left. I remember opening up in his closet and um, grabbing one of his shirts and just holding on to it because it still had it sitting on it. That night was really hard.
0: One thing that had never occurred to me, totally caught me off guard in, in thinking about those pictures, is that when those Marines came to the door and told them the news, well, they didn't actually give much news. This right here was one of This is what was read. Todd actually read me the circumstances of death statement.
4: Hostile action result of multiple traumatic injuries received as a member of a dismounted patrol that was struck by an I.D. while conducting combat operations in the Helmand province. That was it, on patrol, night patrol. That was all I had. So you didn't know anything? That's it.
0: Jonathan's unit was still in Afghanistan, so he couldn't talk to anyone. He had no clue what happened to his son. So when that casualty assistance officer told him, actually there was a photographer in the room with your son when he died. Automatically, I was like, I wanted wanted to call her. Earlier in my conversation with Lindsay, I'd asked her, What do you remember of the call?
1: So the call, um I went to my mother's house in Connecticut and I asked my mother to be left alone, which in a big Italian American family means
10: <laughs> does not happen it's very not often. A small request. No.
1: She sort of looked at me like, What? And I I went up into the guest bedroom and I called him and he picked up. I think he thanked me for calling him. I don't remember exactly what we said, but I said, you know, I was with your son when he died and I will give you as much or as little information as you want. And he said, I want to know everything.
4: Because I wasn't there. I was here.
1: He said, I want to know every single thing. I want to be with my son.
4: Just to lose him and not be there for him. That's, that was hard. Really hard.
1: And I felt sort of very awkward because I felt like, you know, why was I privy to this moment? Um, and he as the father could not be privy.
4: The most important question to me was, did he suffer? Do you think did he suffer?
1: I said, no.
4: She told me, Miss Taylor, I don't I don't think you suffered. I think he was in shock.
1: I told him everything. How much blood his son lost. Oh, how long did they try to save him? And at some point, I said, look, I have these pictures. I have... All of these pictures I shot everything, and I need your permission to publish the ones that show his face.
4: Oh yeah, she asked me for permission, and
1: uh, he was quiet.
4: I said, um, "I told her yes,"
1: but but he said, "I I can I see them?"
4: And I wanted to see him first
1: before I give permission. I want to see every photo, and I said, "You know, I'm not sure you want to see these photos." because they're graphic. But he wanted to see the outtake. He wanted to see every photo.
0: All of them. Yeah.
1: Of course, we were on the phone. I couldn't show him pictures. And legally, I needed permission from Time Magazine to show him anything because, you know, as a journalist, you can't show anything to anyone until it's published. You don't show people pictures of journalism before you publish them.
0: This is one of those cardinal rules that's drilled into every journalist's head. If you show a subject the raw stuff before it's out there... You're kind of giving up the only independence you've got. That's why she says, ordinarily...
1: I would never, ever, ever show.
0: Just to play it out for a second, if he... To be cynical about it, if you show him the pictures, he might take away permission that he might have otherwise give you. Yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. You can say as a publication, no, I won't show you those pictures before you have to just say yes or no. Do you give your permission?
0: Like, in a way, if you get down to it, I feel like one of the fundamental layers here is just like a question of whose rights when it comes to that information, is more important. I could hear an argument that says the battle is important. It was authorized by public figures. It is carrying America's message into the world. And shouldn't Americans see what goes on? Yeah, but I could, I could hear an argument that says, shouldn't a dad be able to protect who sees his son in that situation? Yeah. In any case, Lindsay called her editors at Time. They had a series of conversations that went all the way up to the editor of Time.
1: We had a very intense conversation. And we collectively made a decision to show him the photos.
0: To say that decision was unusual from their perspective would be severely understating it. When I first got these um, from FedEx,
4: I knew they were coming, and I was actually scared to look at them. And I saw my son there, and I just kept looking and, and looking You can see these were the, in the medevac, when they got him on. You can see the night vision lens. There's Jonathan's body, chest, there's his face, there's the oxygen. Still has watch on still. See his eyes closed there, that was.
6: Yeah.
4: So many hands in there working. You can see they're doing CPR there. Now, here you see right leg is really mangled and broken. That's really why he lost so much blood. It was just all right in here. Some of these pictures. Are well, there's some of them that are
0: really hard to see.
4: Yeah. But even though they show the ugliness of war, I've got a piece of Jonathan. This is is my treasure. Mm. And I'll show you one of the pictures
0: that, to me, it's, it always stands out. You brought up the picture of the prayer. All those people standing in a semicircle with faraway eyes. Right here. You just see a little different in their faces here. I mean,
4: it meant something. He was somebody. He wasn't just a number.
0: Todd said he wanted people to see this picture and the others. To convey what's happening over there. This is going on every day. And he says for him, it's not a political thing. You can feel however you want to feel about the wars we're in. For him, it's about people seeing what is actually happening. I mean, I wanted to
4: let people see the sacrifices these boys do.
0: It took Todd and his family over a month to decide what to do about those pictures, whether to grant time, permission to run the photos or not. He says ultimately he called Jonathan's mother over. Her and her husband.
4: And um, my wife and I, we all discussed it.
1: And ultimately, he said no. And it was a lot of back and forth.
0: He said no to showing any pictures at all.
1: Well, he can't say no to any pictures because... Oh, because there's pictures without the face. Yeah, exactly. He said no to any pictures with the face or identifying marks.
4: We decided really that uh, we didn't want these pictures to get out um, for fear that his sisters somehow would get back to them. And that was the big thing. I didn't want them to be able to see this yet. As their dad, I want to protect them from seeing certain things. And so,
0: we decided not to do it. Time had planned to run a whole photo spread on the medevac team trying to save Jonathan Taylor's life. But since they now couldn't use most of those photos, they had to make the photo spread more general.
1: What had been the, basically, the death of a soldier ultimately became a photo essay on the medevac team. And those pictures were maybe two pictures or three pictures in that spread but they were not the focus
0: the prayer photo is in the new spread because in that photo uh, you can't see his body because it's covered with a flag there are no identifying marks but somehow in that context it's it's not got the same impact weirdly because you're seeing the after without the before it, exactly and and you know um let's see here Todd but... showed me. The original photo spread because they had sent that to him. You know, again, super unusual. So this is the um, this is the feature they wanted to do. Yeah, you see the pictures are so much more clear.
4: This is kind of the layout it's going to be. took 29 minutes, graphing it out, minute by minute. This whole process.
0: So there you see all the before pictures that lead up to the prayer, and what it seemed to me is like if you don't see all that stuff, the the uh, the wounds and the blood and the tenderness as they tried to comfort him, and then the emptiness they feel when they couldn't save him. Like, if you don't see all that, you're not really standing with them in that prayer at the end. You're still seeing them across the space.
9: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: In the original spread, you are there in that room. And they did a a great job, you know? It's really powerful. And I couldn't help but think that, like, maybe this would have created that conversation that Lindsay talked about just a tiny bit. And, like, how weird that I'm one of the only people to see it. And to know that, like, I, the only reason I can describe it to you is because I'm on the radio.
1: You know, I will always feel like, journalistically, we, we sacrifice, you know, we did not tell the story as powerfully as we could have, but we had integrity, and I feel like we treated everyone with respect, and we kept our word.
0: Lindsay and Todd now stay in touch over email once or twice a year. And in terms of keeping your word, Todd has made a deal with his daughters that they can see the pictures when they turn 21. But interestingly, um, the three of them don't agree as to whether they want to. Uh, Paige and Mackenzie, who are about to turn 21, say they don't want to see the pictures.
12: I just couldn't handle it. Yeah, do you feel feel sad? Yeah, I think for me, I just don't want to see him in pain, Mm -hmm. you know. That's Mackenzie. Yeah, my thing is I just don't want to see it because I'd rather just remember him in one piece how he was. I'm just too sensitive.
0: That's Paige. Now Lauren, the youngest. For me. She says she needs to see those pictures
8: because I want to know what he went through, and I like constantly knowing things, and I don't like things being kept from me, and I just want to. I guess I just want a visual of. It sounds like.
0: A- she says she knows he's gone, but she still somehow needs proof.
8: Mm-hmm.
0: Not that it happened. She knows it happened, but so it feels real.
3: Sight Unseen was produced and edited by Jad Abumrad with Soren Wheeler and Jamison York for WNYC's Radiolab and won this year's top honor, the 2015 Third Coast Gold Award. This story premiered on Radiolab's podcast, and this is its broadcast debut. We spoke with Jad, and he told us that this story made a permanent impression on him. He said it all began when he sat down with Todd Taylor. The part that really got me is that we
10: sat
0: on the couch, and I, was, I had been really nervous because I, I wanted to ask him to sh- show me the pictures. Um, but as a dad, like if I had pictures of my sons in that situation, I don't think I could ever show that to anyone, much less look at it. But, this, but he took out these pictures, and he showed them to me, and... Um, And he he was like, these are my treasure. And the way that he was looking at those pictures of his son dying, I don't know, just like I I can't even actually think about it right now without getting um, kind of emotional because it's just kind of crazy. It's like as a dad, like I can't even go there. I can't even like think about that.
3: You know, it it sounds like this story was difficult both personally and professionally. How so?
0: It was like this tension that I couldn't resolve as a as a storyteller and as a reporter and in a, in a way that was the story was like how do you balance what a dad needs versus what a country needs? And it was just really it was really hard and it just it, I found it really hard to be there and um really important and moving to be there like it's exactly the kind of story that i want to tell where it's like i don't know how to feel um it forces me to have to confront something that i'd probably rather not confront um and it changes you it like changes your life in some deep fundamental way
3: jad abhamrod producer and host of Radiolab and winner of the 2015 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Gold Award for his story, Sight Unseen. The human voice is the music that scores our days. Its lilt and tone can be a blue sky or a bruise of bad weather. It can soothe anger, terrify, or tranquilize. Speech and sound fill us up and saturate our sensibilities, be it the voice of a stranger, best friend, or family member. And that chorus of sounds constantly keeps us company. We're grateful for the opportunity to bring you a rich and beautiful cacophony to carry with you on your way. Thanks for listening. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2015 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The program was produced by Dennis Funk with assistance from Elissa Dudley and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The managing director is Sarah Geis. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Logan Foundation, and Bloomberg Philanthropies. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago.